Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and he said, my lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as the gardener turned to go, the king said, wait, you are clearly a very good steward of the land and a good gardener. I own a plot of land right next to yours, and I would like to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman also at the king's court who had overheard all of this. And he said, my, if that is how you get a carrot and what you get for a carrot, what if you give the king something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my Lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, took the horse and dismissed the nobleman. But the nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot but you were giving yourself the horse. <laughs> so there's a thought about giving. <laughs> this is the season of giving, isn't it? This is the season when we explore our gifts and we plan for gifts. Um, we do last minute preparations for Christmas. Uh, one of the ways we celebrate the gift of Jesus is by giving gifts. Hold on just one minute. I am distracted by something and I'm gonna, I just have to do something real quick. Forgive me. Um, this is a season of giving. This is a season when we give gifts and we ask all those questions. Is this the right gift? Did I buy this gift because I like it or did I buy it because it's good for you? And we go around and around trying to find that perfect gift. And beware if you're in the same household as someone else and you buy them a gift because you want it in the house, right? <laughs> Have we all been there, done that? But today we're gonna to talk about some different gifts. We're gonna talk about gifts that were brought to Jesus when he was first born. What did those gifts represent? And how today we can even respond to and give those same gifts. Let me set the scene of the story about the wise men. These were some people who came to visit Jesus right after, soon after he'd been born. Wise men, as we often refer to them, were named um, the Magi, or Magi, or the Three Kings, or the Wise Men from the East. Um, 
that's the Meiji. I looked it up on the internet. I'm like, that's a weird way to say it, but that's how they, that's how they say we should pronounce it. Um, that's what the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians called their teachers, their priests, their physicians, their astronomers, their seers, their interpreters of dreams, even sorcerers. These were all called their magi. This was a group of scholars and mystics from the East who studied the stars and the spiritual realm to understand what was happening in the earth. We often call these the three kings because we know they brought three types of gifts, but we don't really know how many kings or how many wise men there were. Many historians think there were many more, but we simply do not know. We do know that they represented the knowledge, the wealth, and the power of the East. Historians have lots of reasons to believe that they came from Asia, Arabia, and Northern Africa. I think it's good to note that the nations came when Jesus was born. The kings of the earth came when Jesus was born. The other person I want to set the scene for is King Herod. He was a Gentile ruler appointed by the Roman Senate. And like most of the Roman rulers of his day, he was absolutely ruthless. I did not know how many people he had murdered, not just people he didn't know, but he murdered his wife, his three sons, his mother-in-law, brother-in-law, uncle, and many others. His reign was known for, his for all the splendor. He built theaters, amphitheaters, monuments, pagan altars, fortresses, even the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Augustus, the Roman Empire, said bitterly that it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Yeah, even oppressive governmental rule couldn't stop Jesus and his coming. The setting was Jerusalem, the religious and economic and governmental capital for the Jews and the place where the power resided. The other setting was Bethlehem, a small, seemingly insignificant village five miles south of Jerusalem also the birthplace of King David long ago, as well as the place of many important prophecies. And then a star, the bright shining star. Did you all know that tomorrow night in the southwestern sky, about a, an hour after sunset, we get to might be able to see our own Bethlehem star? At least they think it might be something similar. I'm going to be at a park looking for it. So... There's a few things in the setting. Let's read the story. Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem village, Judah territory, this was during Herod's kingship, a band of scholars arrived in Jerusalem from the east. They asked around, where can we find and pay homage to the newborn king of the Jews? We observed a star in the eastern sky that signaled his birth. We're on a pilgrimage to worship him. When word of their inquiry got to Herod, he was terrified. And not Herod alone, but most of Jerusalem as well. Herod lost no time. He gathered all the high priests and religion scholars in the city together and asked, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? They told him, Bethlehem, Judah territory. The prophet Micah wrote it plainly. It's you, Bethlehem, in Judah's land, no longer bringing up the rear. 
From you will come the leader who will shepherd rule my people, my Israel. Herod then arranged a secret meeting with the scholars from the east. Pretending to be as devout as they were, he got them to tell him exactly when the birth announcement star appeared. Then he told them the prophecy about Bethlehem and said, Go find this child. Leave no stone unturned. As soon as you find him, send word, and I'll join you at once in your worship. Instructed by the king, they set off. Then the star appeared again, the same star they had seen in the eastern skies. It led them on until it hovered over the place of the child. They could hardly contain themselves. They were in the right place. They had arrived at the right time. They entered the house and saw the child in the arms of Mary, his mother. Overcome, they kneeled and worshipped him. Then they opened their luggage and presented gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Later in a dream, they were warned not to report back to Herod. So they worked out another route and they left the territory without being seen and returned to their own country. Charles Spurgeon, a well-known preacher from the 1800s, said this about Jesus' birth. A stir begins as soon as Christ is born. He has not spoken a word. He has not wrought a miracle. He has not explained a single doctrine. But yet, when Jesus was born at the very first, well, you could hear nothing but a baby crying and see nothing but a weak infant, still his influence upon the world is manifest. There is infinite power even in an infinite savior infant savior, Jesus at the center of it all. The whole world comes, the whole world comes to see. The events surrounding Jesus's birth and advent are nothing short of extraordinary. Angels visiting individuals, a virgin conceiving a child, older saints prophesying, older barren women giving birth, choruses of angels, signs and wonders in the skies, invitations to midnight shepherds, wise men coming from the east, Herod, trembling. Who is this Messiah? Who is this King of the Jews? Looking at the three gifts that the wise men came and brought to Jesus gives us a very early clue. Lots of historians and commentators like to talk about these. I'm going to use Vivian's words. Vivian Hibbert, Gold represents the divine nature of a king. Frankincense represents the divine work of a great high priest. And myrrh represents the divine life and death of a prophet. These are what the three gifts proclaim. And they didn't just create a prophetic or symbolic picture of who this newborn child was. They were also very practical. They probably paid Jesus and his family soon afterward were warned. Joseph was warned in a dream that they had to flee as refugees and exiles to Egypt. Perhaps these gifts paid for their journey, paid for their time in exile, paid for their return. Some people think it was enough to pay for the first many years of Jesus's life. Isn't that cool how God provides and provided? So let's look at these three gifts. Gold. Wouldn't we love a bunch of gold when we were born? <laughs> it was, we always know that gold represents a precious metal, a symbol of wealth and divinity. 
Throughout history, it's been used for royal power, including scepters and crowns and overlays for thrones. It's always been that the wealthy and powerful have had access to gold. When the wise men asked Herod, where can we find this newborn king of the Jews? It's an amazing question because at that time, Jewish people were often despised and dishonored because of their customs and beliefs, because they were a conquered people. And not only that, but sometimes they still prospered. They often prospered, so people then resented them. How can these conquered people still prosper? They were often thought of as low and troublesome conquered race. And yet, these wise men knew that they needed to not just honor an infant king, but a Jewish king. Isn't it amazing? He also was never a prince. We do call, we do call him the Prince of Peace, but the wise men got there and he was immediately king, right? King. Usually babies go from, from being princes to kings, but not on this one. And it just confirms Revelation 1916. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of King and Lords of Lords. The minute Jesus was born, he was recognized as a great and powerful king. So the gift of gold is an appropriate gift because it's fitting for a king. Jesus is king, and he's the only king we need. He represents a kingdom that is the only kingdom truly worthy of our entire devotion. And yet, it's a radically different kingdom than what we would expect. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, the pro was, it was prophesied, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor, David, for all eternity. This is the kind of king we serve. Jesus says in John 18, 36, he says, he says my kingdom is not of this world. It's a strange kingdom, a kingdom, an upside down kingdom. Spurgeon also highlighted the idea that the shepherds, they didn't lose their way to find Jesus. Isn't that interesting? They somehow knew exactly where Jesus was in a stable, lying with, with in, in a stable with animals and in a manger. But the wise men, they got lost. They couldn't quite find it to the ultimate spot. And so they went straight to the palace to find the king. I wonder if each of us expects to find Jesus where we are most at ease in our own realm of influence. We should ask ourselves, where are we looking for Jesus? Are we looking in stables or in palaces? So we have this awareness and expectation of a king and kingdom that will be found in places of importance, places that represent might and power and empire, yet Jesus is such a humble king. He is worthy of gold, yet he doesn't wear gold. He is worthy of praise, yet he hid from the crowds. He's worthy of honor, yet he washes our feet. He is worthy of power, 
yet he carried his own cross to his death. Jesus, you are the most amazing king. The other gift was frankincense, which represents the divine work of a high priest. Jesus was not just given gold, recognizing his authority and divinity. He was also given frankincense. Both frankincense and myrrh came from Southern Arabia and Somaliland. Thus, they were very expensive as well. In Bible times, frankincense was used in the incense and burned morning and evening in the tabernacle and temple. When frankincense was burned as incense, the smoke burns white. It was considered holy and was only to be used for priestly ceremonial purposes. It was strictly forbidden to use it for anything else. And yet, the wise men brought it to Jesus. In Exodus 30, it says, put the frankincense in, the, in front of the Ark of the Covenant, where I will meet with you in the tabernacle. You must treat this incense as most holy. Never use this formula to make this incense for yourselves. It is reserved for the Lord, and you must treat it as holy. Frankincense reveals the fragrance of Jesus's perfect life and ministry. It speaks to his priesthood and the holiness of who he is. The whole book of Hebrews is about Jesus as our great high priest. It says, because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as a sacrifice for the people's sin. Once for all. The gift of frankincense was a picture of Jesus' priesthood. He would be our new high priest. We would need no other. But myrrh and embalming spice would illustrate that not only was Jesus the great high priest, he is at the same time the ultimate sacrifice. Here we go, Raylin, talking about sacrifice. <laughs> no longer do we need to offer perpetual sacrifices in a temple? Jesus came as the final and ultimate sacrifice for our sins, once and for all. Hallelujah. Isn't it amazing? We don't have to keep working for this. When the wise men entered the house and saw the child in the arms of Mary, his mother, overcome, they kneeled and worshipped him. They opened their luggage and presented gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When we recognize Jesus, how do we respond? Do we kneel and worship? Do we open up our hearts? Do we pull out the gifts and recognition and worship of our king as a king, priest, and sacrifice? I think, I know for me, we often like to favor one way of viewing Jesus over another. 
Sometimes we focus solely on Jesus as the one who laid down his own life and was sacrificed for us. He's given us a field to garden. But other times we forget he's a king worthy of our submission. He wants my carrot, not my horse. Other times we can soar to great visions and imaginings of Jesus as a ruling king where every knee bows. We sang that today, it's so beautiful. But sometimes we think of him as so high and exalted and amazing and powerful that we forget and we diminish the beauty of his mercy as a priest who identifies with us and empathizes with us in our weakness. We forget he was a sacrifice wrapped in and buried in myrrh for the sin and pain of the world. We've talked a lot about the challenges of this year. We've learned a lot about it being, about going off trail, being reset, humbling ourselves, having a moment, a sila moment to pause and reflect and wait. But I really believe God wants to do this today supernaturally. I, want, I believe he wants to give us a greater revelation as, of Jesus as all three of those things, a king, a priest, and a sacrifice. And it's not just about seeing Jesus differently. It's about us being different as his children and followers and kingdom ambassadors. It's about us changing the way we walk in the earth as well. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Ephesians 5.1, therefore, we should be imitators of God as beloved children, and we should walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, and we also are anointed with myrrh, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God and the world around us. Just gonna finish with a prayer. If you're with me here, would you please stand if you're, um, or bow your head wherever you are, whatever posture of prayer you'd like to take. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the center of it all. You are the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we just offer to you our devotion. We submit to you as King. We bow our heads before you and say, you are worthy. We also recognize you as a priest. We recognize you as the great high priest, the one who intercedes on our behalf the one who um, connects with us and knows our needs and empathizes with us in our weaknesses and our, our weaknesses and our sin and our temptation.
Thank you, God. And thank you for your sacrifice. We recognize that. We recognize that you were buried and that you resurrected and that you did all of that for us. And we receive that. We want to respond to that today. And God, I just pray today that we, your people, that we would also be living sacrifices for you, that we would be an offering to you in the world around us, that we would walk as humble, royal priests, that we would be living sacrifices and an aroma and fragrance of Christ everywhere we go. That when we think of frankincense and myrrh, that we would symbolically anoint ourselves with that and carry that fragrance to the world around us. In the name of Jesus, amen.